Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast with Josiah Meyer. I am a former missionary who is stepping back currently to deconstruct my faith and seek a healthy way to pursue God. Uh, normally I'm joined by my wife, but today I'm joined by my longtime friend, mentor, pastor, Merle Nisley. And this is going to be a part two, so if this is the first one you're listening to, it would make a lot more sense for you to go back and listen to the previous podcast called What is the Gospel? featuring Josiah Meyer, myself. And in that podcast, I had basically said, I don't believe anymore some of the things that I used to consider central to the Christian message, and especially kind of the the straightforward presentation of the gospel of that some of you might have seen on a gospel tract with the four spiritual laws. Uh, God is holy. We are sinful. Jesus died for our sins. You need to make a decision and sign the card here. Or maybe you did the wordless book. It starts with, I think, gold because God created everything good. And then there's black because we sinned and messed it up. And then there's red because Jesus died for our sins. And then there's white because we can be forgiven for our sins. And then there's green because we need to grow in our faith. Um, And there's other ways of explaining this. There's kind of the typical hellfire brimstone sermon that some of you may have grown up with that the pastor will kind of express in a very graphic way that hell is a terrible place. Everybody's going there. We all deserve to go there because we're such terrible sinners. We were born in sin. And the only way to get out of that is that Jesus died for us and and paid the price for our sins. So in the previous podcast, I talked about just kind of some of my problems with that. Well, I said discombobulated. I just felt destabilized because I had always kind of seen that as the center. That's the central spoke of everything else. Everything else kind of revolves around that. But I saw just as I'm trying to pursue health, I f- there's so many things that are not healthy about that and about the way of organizing my faith around that central thing. And I know that some people will consider me that that is the defining issue. If I don't see things that way, then I'm I'm a liberal, I'm a heretic, whatever. But I sent this over to Merle Nisley, who's sitting across from me waiting for me to stop talking probably. So I'm just really curious what you thought of some of my concerns and like, do you think I'm a heretic? Do you hear some of these things and think, oh no, now he's really gone? Well, the short answer to that is I don't consider all different views about eternal punishment, especially about eternity, to be heresy because I think we all admit, all of us who have studied and heard the Bible a long time, being taught or have studied it ourselves, we realize that there are a lot of things about the afterlife that we are not really sure about in its details. So I don't write you off as a heretic just off the cuff. I care a lot about how we use the term gospel. I care a lot whether we are willing to just consider that what has evolved, uh, we'd have to admit what has evolved to today's term gospel for many people is not the same as what we find in the scripture. So we have to admit that that term has, or what we say is the content of the gospel or the, the essential message, that has changed uh, since the time of the apostles, uh, the way Jesus taught it. So I think it's fair to say that it's not heresy to review that. It's not heresy to say what has happened to our story, uh, what has happened to the way we tell the story. And that's actually been a theme of mine for a number of years, is how we tell the story. And I don't think we have to be messing with the essentials of what Jesus and the apostles taught and what the early church believed. I don't think we have to mess with those essentials to admit that we tell the story quite differently than what we find recorded in the scriptures when the actors there told what they thought was the essential story. So, in short, it's not heresy to review that, in my view. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if I took that where you expected me to take it for now, but that's my well, response. Well, I, I probably wouldn't have had this podcast with somebody that I thought would have answered yes to that question. 
I did kind of guess that you wouldn't say yes to that. And as much as I think it is true that many people would see this as a, as a, a defining issue, kind of doing the previous podcast, I realized, you know, there's never been a creed. There's never been a church council or anything that has decided that this is the way it is. Really, it is the fundamentalists of the 1920s that got together with some wealthy businessmen and wrote the five fundamentals of the faith, which, you know, not necessarily bad to define those things, but those kind of became the central understanding of what the faith is, the virgin birth and, you know, inerrancy of scriptures. And along with that, kind of this very rigid way of understanding what it means, what the atonement means, what it means that we get saved. Um, you had mentioned that the gospel, the, the way we tell the story now is different than how it was told by Jesus. How would you see a difference between kind of the four spiritual laws and the message that Jesus had? Well, I think I'd like to sort of combine the way Jesus, uh, talked to people and the way the apostles introduced the gospel to people. Very significant that Matthew records that John the Baptist came preaching repentance and that the kingdom of heaven is near and then i think it's in the very next chapter i don't have a bible open to to tell you exactly where that was i think it's in in chapter four and five or chapter three and four where and then the very next chapter after describing how john the baptist came it says that jesus came preaching uh, the same thing that to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It just strikes me very interesting that today, if we talk about uh, someone starting a message or come preaching the gospel, we would change that very much. We would change it to say, repent for the fires of hell are near. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different way of talking than the way John the Baptist and Jesus talked. They came and taught, they preached repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. They didn't preach repentance with the threat of eternal conscious torment. That was not what they put in the same sandwich with the message of even of repentance. It wasn't put in the same mouthful. It wasn't put in the same sentence. So I just think that a long time ago. I'm not as, nearly as much a historian as you are, but I hear references to Jonathan Edwards' sermons, mm -hmm. uh, to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I hear references to that often enough to, to convince me that that sermon, rather than causing huge alarm among other theologians, it was seen as a sort of a standard, sort of a way of beginning to talk about it. In my view, that sermon should have caused tremendous alarm. And I think the Apostle Paul would have said, as he did with people who just changed, who just added circumcision, who just used other Judea Judaism, uh, points of Judaism to change the gospel. Paul said, you're preaching a different gospel. And he was very, very severe in his statements about preaching a different gospel. So I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to erase all consequences from our decisions or say that God has no sense of judgment, that God has no sense of justice. That's not my point because the scripture is very clear to me that God has a sense of justice and that it will be enacted in exactly the right way uh, that only God knows. But that's very different than talking the way Jonathan Edwards did in that sermon. And I don't hear people critiquing that. I hear people actually using it as a platform from which to say similar things in slightly less ways, slightly less theatrical ways, but those 37 pages, if I remember the number right, I counted them once, 37 pages 
of going on and on about how God despises us because of our sinfulness and cannot even stand to barely touch us as he holds us over the flame. I know I'm not quoting exactly, but Mm -hmm. I blame that sermon for so much of the underlying assumptions that many people today have about that being the starting point, that being the way of beginning to tell the story. And I'm going to stop fussing now about how wrong that was, because sometime I'd like to, I hope we get on to how we can actually think of the story differently and tell the story differently. So I really went off, I really went off on you there, but that's... Well, it was in my notes, actually. I'm surprised, but not too surprised that you went to Jonathan Edwards, because as I listened to it again, I thought, because, you know, as a pastor, as you speak, the congregation responds, and you can gauge that. And if you walk with congregations long enough, you you get a sense of what it is that they want to hear. And sometimes you feel like you shouldn't give them what they want, but sometimes it feels like all right, that one was the sweet spot and it was like the right message, but also what they wanted to hear. And, you know, it feels like, like I listen to Joe Rogan, who's a comedian and he talks about creating jokes with the audience. You can't create them by yourself. You got to see what lands. And it seems like what really lands for people is Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of the anger God, at least for certain people, certain people will get really mad at that, but certain other people and maybe the most important people to impress in church, the the long-term people and the people that are the donors and the elders. And, you know, it's like certain people really want to hear you're all sinners. Jesus died for you. Come down to the altar. Like that is the bullseye that some people really crave. I can tell on my, on people's faces. Cause I used to kind of, they used to be my go-to is to tell this story and or this way of telling it. And, the more I thought about, well, what is it? It's not the wordless book. That's not the bullseye. It's not the four spiritual laws because that's very recent. What is it? And I realized it is, it seems to go back to Jonathan Edwards and this sermon. And I mean, I could have printed it out or something, but the line that sticks out to me as well is similar to what you mentioned. He has this, he talks about the the flames of hell and how you're held precariously over the flames of hell. The only thing holding you up is the hand of God but God despises you um, just like if if you're holding a spider over a flame and you hate the spider so much. And that is the mental picture of how God looks at you, that he just despises you and, and wants to flick you into the flames. And so then it's up to you to quickly, you know, come running down the altar and beg Jesus to forgive you or else you will end up in the flames forever. And it was a very much of an emotive sermon, but also it kind of, you know, because, you know, different people have different ways of doing it. But if you're somebody that, like me, that's not very confrontational, I've never done a hellfire brimstone sermon, but I have had other ways of communicating the same message. And, and that message se- does seem to be kind of central to how we tend to tell the story. That's just true. And I have a, a sense in myself that I've made the statement, I refer to a note here, but it seems to me that we Christians, especially with the more fundamental background, we feel that the more severe we can talk about that aspect of it, the more likely it is to be true. And that if we back off one inch on the severity part of it, then we're compromising the truth of it. And that just does not seem to be the concern of Jesus or the apostles, because uh, none of them, not one of them, in their conversations with people outside the church or sermons outside the church began with the threat of the worst description of eternal conscious torment. They didn't begin with that. They didn't start their making that the fundamental starting point as to why the gospel is actually a message of good news. That's simply not how they began talking to people in any illustration I can find. Mm -hmm. Well, just to kind of sum up what you had said, I feel as though uh, when people say something like, that guy's really preaching the gospel versus 
Well, he's got some good points, but I wish we could hear the gospel more often. Usually what people mean, what the yardstick seems to be, is how often does somebody scare us about hell and talk about the anger of God and then talk about, you know, how much we need to get saved. That seems to be the yardstick. And I think what maybe what we're both kind of seeing is that there should be a different yardstick. I'd be really interested in what you think repentance and the kingdom would have meant for Jesus and, and the first apostles. I think that's uh, an essential question. I don't know. I cannot step into their shoes very well. I've looked into that some, and I can't step into their shoes totally. Can I pause you for one second and say I appreciate that humility? Yeah, okay, thanks. There's a couple things that I think are really, really important, is a better understanding of God's plan from eternity to eternity, if we, for lack of better terminology, from whatever point become acquainted with God's plan and his story to whatever point that sort of reaches its ultimate stage to have a better understanding that there is that God, whether I grasp it or not, God has a a plan that flows like a large river through all of known history and known future. And he has things in mind. He has a place he's going with with this. That's my faith. And that rather than just bringing the story back to me, that's one of the problems with uh, the more contemporary views of of what we call the gospel is because it's all about me. It's all about my problems and my need rather than moving that over and saying, no, this story is me catching on to the plan of God, to the story that God is developing, to his intentions, his plans, his ideals, his goals as a creature of his, as part of a creation that he made, that he created, he invites me into that story. He invites me, he invites you and I into that story. He didn't write the story because of us. He didn't write the story to, to save me. That's a misunderstanding of, I think, of God's eternal like his cosmic plan and thinking is not because I'm a sin. It's because he has a plan and he has provided everything. His The story, the desire that is on his heart, that is love for his creation includes me, but mm-hmm. it's not about me. And so... <laughs> If we would humble ourselves and say, no, it's not about me. Even the gospel is not about me. Mm -hmm. It it starts with him. Any version of the gospel that begins with any other word than God is a false gospel. Mm. (laughs) That's an overstatement, maybe. But the story of the gospel begins with him and his amazing love and desire to be with his creation. That's the story from the beginning and the cycles of people being with God and then rejecting him just repeat themselves over and over throughout the biblical story. And it takes a tremendous turn when Jesus comes to be part of that story in our world. And the story changes pretty, really dramatically because of it and how he lived with us and how he arranged things, and how he conquered the whole concept of death and hell and of sin. He didn't come to save me from my sins first. He came and did his amazing atoning work to destroy the works of death and hell, and I benefit from that. He didn't come to save me he came to destroy the works, the whole concept of death and hell. And I benefit from it as I participate with him 
in his eternal plan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you saying that has just kind of sparked this, something I keep coming back to is realizing how much I should have paid better attention in seminary or shouldn't have turned my back on some things because a lot of the things that I thought, oh, that's silly, almost liberal stuff. Now I'm coming back to and realizing, oh, they had a point. And something that was critiqued in seminary is this thing of asking Jesus into my heart, which is not a scriptural passage. What is scriptural is being born again, you know, entering into a new life. Nobody's born into a privatistic reality. You're born into life where everybody else is alive, you know, join the new reality. This understanding of Jesus loves me, God loves me, and there's different words for love. And in the Greek, it's clear that agape love is a love that is like a mother to a child. It's outflowing. Whereas eros love is, I need you. Like, I won't be complete without you. And often the message is given in such a way that, like, Jesus loves you in a romantic eros sort of a way, as though if you don't love him back, he'll be sad. And sometimes that's explicitly even said to children, like, would you want to make Jesus sad? I mean, that's emotionally distressing, but also it it makes it individualistic. This idea I've heard many times, even if there was only one person, Jesus would have died just for me, which may or may not be true, but it's not in the Bible anywhere. And I hear it repeated over and over. There's the song, Like a Rose Trampled on the Ground, Thought of Me a Bubble. If if you want to talk heresy, that's a totally, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing that helps us tell the story, that trains us to tell the story in, in ways that are not even that are not accurate and that are not in line. They're just simply not the way that the biblical authors and the people told the story at the beginning. And another thing, just to continue with this thread, that isn't helpful is that in English, we only have one word for the second person, singular or plural, which is you. Whether it's you singular or you plural. In the South, you can say y'all. And that's actually helpful because then you know if you're talking singular or plural. And when we read the Bible, oftentimes, especially in the epistles, it is the collective community that's addressed. You all are recipients of grace. You all are, you know, elect in Christ. Jesus died for you all. You all are being built into the household of God. Right. uh, The temple of God. All these things, you're so right. That changes the message so much. And to me, it's so sad. What is sad is how distorted and how truncated the message of the gospel is when it's designed about around me and my sin and my eternal destiny. And those things become actually the only intelligible elements of most gospel presentations, the rest, words like kingdom, words like church, were in the sense of which Jesus used the word church when he said, I will build my church. Those words aren't even needed. The word kingdom and the word church, they're just optional. Mm-hmm. They're completely optional. There's some later concept that you might add to once you are individually saved and once you are individually on your journey to an eternal destiny, then concepts like the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and the church, the body of Christ, these are things you can learn later. You don't need them. You don't need to be introduced to any of those broader concepts at the beginning because the main thing is just to get your destiny changed. That's a different gospel. In the wordless book, you know, there's all the colors and the last one is green, which is grow. And, you know, you could grow on your own, but also this is the time, like at a camp or something, that you would say, well, you know, you should find a good church where you can grow spiritually. And so the growth is kind of, for the last day, as they're kind of packing up to go, you're like, oh, make sure you read your Bible and grow in your faith. And also, if you can find time to find a church, that would be great. So it's kind of this tack on at the end. Yeah. Whereas it kind of seemed like in the New Testament time, it was like, first of all, let's talk about getting you into the community. And the community is actually doing something. And then, you know, salvation is part of that. Exactly. Yeah, the way you talked about church as as the way you keep yourself growing. Yeah, I've often said it's 
it's just like running past you're on your individual marathon and you run past this stand where you can grab an energy drink on the way that's what the church basically has become for in this version of the story is it's a way of me being encouraged me a, a way of not giving up a way of having the the strength to keep on my individual journey and as you said that would be so foreign to the apostles and their people's concept of a church where you are like first corinthians 12 that talks about the body we usually read that as a way of figuring out which piece i am and what my contribution is well the main message of that is you're part of it whether you like it or not you are part of a bigger entity and you need to see yourself i need to see myself as an extension of others as we are ex extension of one another we don't decide sometime to become a member of the church as we participate with god's plan as we join into his thing that's like saying a baby is born into the world and decides do i want this do i want to breathe this atmosphere or don't i you know you try to get a baby to be convinced that they need to join the air breathers that's how foreign that idea would have been i think to the people in the first round of churches is well, of course, what else are you after you say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't, and you become part of this community, part of this movement, of saying, oh, do you want to join the church too? That would be like saying to a baby, do you want to breathe the same air we do, or are you going to bring your own? Mm -hmm. So then my problem at this point is I'm scared of community. And yeah. I mean, obviously that flows out of my journey where I am currently, but also I think if we're talking about the gospel being so different that perhaps you said several times a false gospel, I've been thinking that. I feel like one of these can't be correct. One of them has to be so significantly wrong that it would be, it's almost a false gospel, but I'm afraid of community and I feel like one community, like another song that bothers me is... God is on our side, who can be against us? And, you know, which is biblical, but there's this refrain over and over of God is on our side, God is on our side, God is on our side. And it gets such an image of all these individuals, individually, consumeristically, thinking God is on my side because I believe the right things. Right. And then we need to go overseas or we need to go out to convert other people into being consumers of God. So they need to believe the right things so that they can also know that God is on their side. And then there's a whole lot of toxicity. There's a whole lot of problems that go along with that. What I hear you saying is it's not about being God being on our side. It's about us being on God's side, kind of like the angel that confronted Joshua. Are you on our side or on their side? And, and he said, neither, but I represent the hosts of the Lord. And it's like, are you going to be on God's side? Are you going to be on God's mission? Right. How do you help somebody like me that feels like, I guess I'm scared of community in the sense of, and this isn't against specific, you know, churches or, or people. It's just, help me out. Say something. Well, <laughs> I, I wish we could just, well, first of all, let me say, I think I understand why community scares a lot of people. It, it scares me too way because it's not what I idealize and it probably never will be. I was recently reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous and eloquent statement about, I won't quote him exactly when I try to repeat it, you probably know what I'm referring to, but, but he said something like when our, when our passion for and our dream our vision of the community, when we love that more than we actually love the community itself, we become an enemy of the community, no matter how sacrificially or passionately we invest ourselves in our own version of it. So I think he's really onto something. We can, when my ideas of a certain reality 
uh, become more important than the reality itself, or in this case, what version of God's plan and God's story. When I love that more than I love the story itself, assuming there's an objective apart from me story, there's an objective apart from me plan that God has been developing in, throughout eternity. When I love my version of that more than I love his version of it, I become an enemy of it. I may not be exactly answering your question, but it's some of our mental pictures just aren't helping us. And I don't know what mental pictures are the most helpful, but one of the ones recently to me, and I alluded to it just a little bit ago, when I picture God's story as this massive river flowing through human history or in human history, there's this current. It's going somewhere. It it has a path. It has it has movement, intention, and I'm invited to stop wandering around in the forest and get in a canoe or a kayak and get on the river and be part of a, be part of his plan. He has always been about inviting people into partnership with him to participate with him in his plan. And it's not just crossing the fence from one playground into another or crossing the boundary from one city into another. It is, I mean, some of those metaphors work partially and the river one works partially too. But people who are confused or people who are not part of God's movement, God's plan, not participating, are sometimes people who are just still watching the river, just looking at it, just standing on shore and saying, I don't know, that looks okay. It looks inviting and it looks like it's something I want to be a part of, but I'm not sure. But throughout history, too, there have been a few who are determined to redirect that or to fight against it or to actually become enemies of it. And I think the way we tell the story confuses those things and tries to make everybody the worst enemy of God's plan. I just think this invitation is not a threat. God's way of speaking to the world does not begin with a threat. It begins with a loving invitation. It begins with a description. If we just knew how to better tell the story of the kingdom, how to tell people that what the story of the kingdom is, but you say that phrase to most evangelical Christians, they, don't, they, they wouldn't know where to start, have no idea, because you can't do it in two minutes. And that's a big problem. That's another huge thing about what we think the gospel must be. We must be able to convince somebody within a couple minutes. We must be able to out-argue them on the street corner or something and back them into a mental, logical corner so that they have no other answer to give but that, yes, I'm a sinner. Okay, I agree, I'm a sinner. Those kind of things are a travesty in my understanding, when we do not have the time and don't believe there's the time, we don't even know how to tell the story other than narrowing it down to, to four short points or five quick pages, because we don't know what to do with the rest of the story. We don't know how to tell, we don't know how the Old Testament fits into it. We don't know how Revelation fits in. We just need to get this quick version down so that we can tell it in a minute and somebody has to say yes or no. Yeah. That's a travesty. I think part of what has happened is, again, the conflict in the 1920s between the fundamentalists and the modernists or the liberals. And liberalism was getting very strong in the universities. And one of the things it was really emphasizing was, you know, helping people, being socially engaged and then socially engaged with 
politics and social reform and things like this. And then the conservatives really said, no, no, it's not about earning our way into heaven. We need to focus on, you know, grace and forgiveness and how much of sinners we are. And historians kind of talk about a split where the liberals kind of took the you know, social component, and they've been criticized as having the social gospel. And then we kind of took the personal salvation side of things. And it seems like those two things need to be together. And it seems like we need to have, yes, you know, Jesus forgives you for your sins, and then you have a new life, and you're reborn, and you're part of the community, and all these things, like it is a spiritual transformation. But also, there's going to, like, the widows and orphans are going to be impacted by your life. The people that need it the most in your community, there should be an appreciable difference in their lives because there's Christians in the area. Whereas I feel like in churches today, the poorest people in our communities are not impacted. I mean, there are some exceptions, right? There are clearly exceptions. But in general, if somebody gets saved, it's not as though there's going to be any difference for the people that are living below the income line or the poverty line or the single mothers in the community or the people that are orphans literally or figuratively or the minority groups or the immigrants or there's going to be no difference for them. It's not just that there isn't any passion for that and people don't see that as part of the gospel, as part of the message that is actually seen as the enemy. Like if you put too much emphasis on that stuff and say, actually that stuff is part of following Jesus, somebody's going to call you a liberal and say that's the social gospel and say that you're probably preaching salvation by works. And I feel as though actually that's what salvation looks like. Yeah. And then to add to that, that also becomes a political statement now yeah. in the United States, especially that's democratic talk that's, or, you know, depending on who you talk to. Maybe even Marxist. Yeah, it even even can be Marxist, yeah, and socialist. It's really sad. It's a very difficult time to actually review these things because as soon as we do, as soon as there's something said uh, that uses any kind of language that belongs in some other ideology, then you instantly have a label, instantly are labeled and categorized as being not one of us or of something else and really too bad there are some really excellent leaders and influencers who are taking a very different approach and those are people to take very seriously and much of their message and influence uh, can be very helpful in sorting some of these things out it's not like who uh shane claiborne and scott mcknight and Brian Zond, there are people like that who, or even Sky Jatani, there are people who have for years, for decades, been uh, tremendous influencers, but the most hardcore fundamentalist viewpoints of some of these people is that they marginalize them or call them heretics yeah. or say exactly what you did is they're softening the gospel, they're compromising the gospel when they're actually fleshing out the gospel in the way that Jesus talked about and are actually taking uh, some of Jesus' own statements about who deserves the harshest punishment. Jesus' words about who deserves the harshest punishment were for those who paid no attention to the needs around them, to the people who were suffering right in under their noses and did nothing about it. That's when Jesus referred to the fires of hell, actually. And all we have to do is look at some of that. And I'm not the greatest example. I was programmed a lot like what you're describing most of that viewpoint. I was programmed a lot that way. I'm not at the forefront of modeling a different way I'm trying, I'm working at that because I believe and see it differently than I used to. And my message is different than it used to be. But I honestly believe that it's much more the way Jesus and the apostles talked about community, about church, about where we start and what difference it makes and how we participate in God's plan and his message of reconciliation.
that's the ministry of reconciliation. I mentioned this the other time we talked, I think, but that's another word that isn't even needed in most of the presentations of the gospel today is and the concept that God intends to reconcile all things to himself. So what do you think happens after you die? Do people that are doing bad things go to hell? How bad do you have to be to go to hell? Because if you say, yes, bad people go to hell, then so, then I then my role is to say, well, then you believe in salvation by works. And then if you say no, then I'll say, oh, okay, well, good. You, you understand the gospel then. So that, that's how, you know. Yeah. In regard to hell, one of the things that is most problematic to me about the typical story, the typical way of telling the story and referring to hell or heaven, to referring to destination as the primary concern. One of the things that's most disturbing to me is that the way we tell that part of the story, every person, every being, beginning with Satan, if you consider him a personality, that a personality, to the child with the least actual sin pattern or experience of sin, everybody from one side of that spectrum to the other gets exactly the same eternity and degree of eternal conscious torment. And that's really problematic in how we tell the story, in my view. And we say, well, we just don't know. We just don't know. Well, we say a lot of other things we don't know. We say there's a lot of things about that version of eternal conscious torment for every person who is, by some definition, a sinner, quote-unquote, is that the effects or the result in hell is exactly the same for everybody. At least that's how we tell the story. And the problem is that we're ignoring some often repeated phrases in the scripture when it refers to punishment in that way and or consequences in that way. And that is the phrase, depending on the version of the scripture, but in almost every instance where eternal consequence punishment is referred to, there's a phrase there, according to their deeds. And you will find that over and over, always, always in the immediate context of reference to punishment for the wicked is that idea, either in these exact words or something very similar, according to their deeds. That, to me, is the evidence of a just God, uh, completely just and our story needs to say, God is just. He is absolutely just. He doesn't punish people exactly the same, no matter what they have done. That doesn't sound like justice to anyone. There's no rational person on this earth who believes that it's a description of justice to say that everybody gets exactly the same punishment no matter what you've done. And unfortunately, that's how we try to tell the story. And that description of justice just doesn't make sense to anybody who is a rational thinker. But then what some people will say, so Bruce Wilkinson wrote a book called The Secrets of the Vine uh, about 10 or 15 years ago. I read it in seminary. Just a small little book. And his argument in that book was that Hell gets worse and heaven gets better. So there are eternal rewards. If you get saved, you go to heaven. And if you do good things after you get saved, then heaven gets better and better. If you don't get saved, according, you know, like the gospel, like we've been talking about, then you go to hell. If you don't know the right things, if you don't say the right things, then you go to hell. Hell is bad for everyone, but it can get worse if you do really bad things. So does that fix your problem? Because everybody's suffering consciously and eternally, but some people are really suffering consciously and eternally in hell. Well, it's an, see, the thing is, he may be right. I don't know. 
Okay. Right. I don't know. These are things that we can either talk about it and make it sound like we know everything that we're talking about and use it as a central part of our message, or we can back off and say, you know, I don't really know how that's going to be. I just know that I don't really want to be an enemy of God. I want to be on his side. That's, I think, and we say, well, but there's no hammer there. There's no ammunition. There's no power there. There's no forcefulness. There's no argument if all you're doing is inviting someone to something good and you're not threatening them with something bad, then you don't really have a lever. You don't really have adequate, you don't really have adequate uh, power in your message. I don't find that Jesus or the apostles felt that way, that they they always had to combine the worst threat along with the best news. They didn't do that. The book of Colossians goes on and on and on for example, about how it is that we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Paul finds no need whatsoever anywhere there to describe in vivid detail what the kingdom of darkness was like or what we were saved from or exactly what punishment we were spared from. He doesn't find it necessary. It's not an important part of it. And So I think the biggest thing to me is let's not be so sure about things that we don't really know. And let's not make major points and central arguments about things that we're not really sure about. That's part of my response to is we get clues. The other thing that's sobering to me in all of this, and I say this right off, just because I believe something or because I come to a conclusion doesn't create a reality in in the ultimate scheme of things. And so I might get to that final day or some, or if, if there's a, if there actually is an actual day of judgment, I think there will be this in some way. I'm not sure what that will look like. And maybe I will get there and I will find out that it is more like what I wish it weren't like. And that's okay. To me, that's fine. If it's different than I imagine it to be, or different than we, as a community, take the clues and the references to eternity and the afterlife, and we do our best with them, we find out that we were wrong on a number of points, I think that's fine. We just have to be very careful that we don't use some of those vague references and some of the assumptions that we have based on the sermons of Jonathan Edwards and other writings and different things that people have used to give us mental pictures, we just have to be very cautious about using those things as central themes and basic and central parts of the foundation of how we tell the story in ways that Jesus and the apostles never told it. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, I said I appreciated your humility in saying, this is my idea, but it might be wrong. And I I heard you say that again. And there's this circular logic of, you know, people will say things like, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God's word is perfect. And then they'll say, well, I'm just a fallible human being without making the connection that actually it's me that's coming up with these doctrines and, and drawing the connection between this verse, that verse, and that verse. We do have to have that humility to say, actually, you know, Jonathan Edwards was just a person and Billy Graham is just a person. And these people that are writing these, you know, four step gospel cards and having the gospel prayer that you sign at the bottom, they're just people. And people want to say, well, this is the gospel message and you have to say it this way. And then, you know, for sure you're saved when I don't think that there's any assurance whatsoever given in scriptures that if you say the right thing and think the right thing, you'll be saved. I think that. If you look at what Jesus said when he was talking about eternity and the consequences of judgment, what he was saying is, actions, follow me. He didn't say, believe in me. I don't think Jesus ever said, believe in me. I could be wrong on that. But he said, follow me. And he said, you know, build, you know, he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And then he said, the person who listens to my advice and lives it out is like the person that built his house on the rock. And 
you know, this thing of stepping out into the river that you've talked about, that God is doing something and there's something, there's movement, there's progress towards an end. You know, I think a lot of people feel as though becoming a Christian means going to church, subjecting themselves to a certain sort of a social structure, because all groups of people have a certain structure, you know, like you have to dress in a certain way, you have like there's a certain social hierarchy, there's things that whenever there's a group of people, there's certain things you have to do to be accepted by the club, which is not good or bad. It's just part of it. But if there could be some way of, you know, being on God's mission, it's not just about believing the right things, getting butts in seats and getting more people to believe the right things so that they can be in a church so that they can listen to the ideas. What are we actually about as a community that might be easier to feel as though we're part of the kingdom and not just part of a class learning ideas. Right. I think that another part of that river metaphor that that is so amazing to me or helpful to me is rivers have a purpose. Rivers water things. Rivers contain life. Rivers are the source of life. They make so that all the forest along the river can live and has life like it's not an isolated flow of water that does nothing in the earth it has purpose in fact it's i just said this in a message a couple weeks ago what what's interesting about this metaphor is that when the river flows into the ocean you sort of say well the river has reached its its final destiny it has no real purpose then anymore that's sort of an interesting twist to how much we focus on destiny as a river sort of ceases to have meaning or like destiny is not destiny is the whole story for a river a river does most of its work on the way there mm-hmm. and i think that's a an interesting lesson or an interesting helpful way of thinking about our partnership with god our participation in God's plan. Well, I appreciate that. And I mean, it makes me think of, uh, it's almost Christmas time and we'll sing um, Holy Night. And the verse that always sticks out to me is, chains shall he break for our slave is our brother. Mm-hmm. And in a way, like lines like that and the fact that they were true and sometimes still are true in history makes the whole story make sense. That's why when Jesus came, it was peace on earth, goodwill towards men, because there is power to overcome social structures and to advocate for the weak and to, you know, unite humanity and to create good. It can be good news. But the other side of that is when we lose sight of that and it's no longer good news, when, as we're seeing, change shall he break for the slave is our brother. I mean, the seminary I'm studying at, Southern Evangelical Seminary, came out with a paper a couple months ago condemning the Black Lives BLM movement. And I understand like it's also an institution and it's a group of people that believe certain things and, and they wanted to stand against that. But also, there's a lot happening. So it felt to me emblematic of the attitude of we don't need to focus on what's happening racially in our country. We just need to focus on the gospel, meaning you know, this four step, just get saved, these sorts of ways. And to me, that's not preserving the gospel, that's corrupting the gospel. And I feel like if the gospel isn't changing things so that they're actually demonstrably better for the weaker and for the people that Jesus was concerned about, I feel like it's not the gospel anymore. It feels like it's just protecting the exact people that Jesus was so angry at. We are kind of winding down to the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask you, So what about, like, the Catholics have recently come around to this idea of unknown brethren, that there can be Christians that don't know that they're Christians. And if God is about reconciling the world to himself, if if God is about, you know, loving widows and orphans and, and making things better, is it possible that there are people who are more aligned with God's purposes, who are aligned with God's purposes and who are on God's team, they just don't realize it yet. And before you answer that, there's a few verses that would seem to be that way. For example, there's the parable of the two sons. The father told his children to go work in the field. 
The one said, yes, I will, Father, but then he didn't. And the other said, no, I won't, Father. But then he ended up going out and working. And the question was, which one was the faithful son? It's the one that actually worked. There's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And there are people that thought they were in the kingdom, but actually they weren't. And there were people that didn't think they were in the kingdom, but actually they were. And why? It's because Jesus said, some of you visited me in prison and cared for me and fed me. And they said, when did we do this? And he said, as, as much as you've done it for the least of these, my brethren, you've done it for me. And there's other examples as well. Oh, and Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must go and collect them as well. So do you think there are, it's possible to be part of the kingdom while not actually being a Christian and believing the right things? I think that it's possible to be much more aligned with God's plan and purpose than we realize. And it's possible, as the Pharisees found out, to think you're partnering with God, that you're serving God, and actually be an enemy of the whole thing. Those things are both sobering. When we just think of uh, the binary idea, either saved or not saved, then some of the, uh, some questions like that seem sort of gnarly, seem a little hard to, you have to have a theology and a doctrine that either, that just answers this binary option, either you're saved or not saved. And it may be helpful to just think more in terms of there are people who are consciously responding to God, consciously developing faith, and consciously moving and growing toward God in that and responding to him, partnering with him, loving him and receiving his love. There are others who I believe are maybe they've never considered that there and maybe they're not sure there is a supreme almighty God who has a plan. And so maybe they've never been aware that a lot of the life they're living is actually fairly harmonious with God in many ways and with his plan, and in other ways, not very cooperative, in other ways, actually sort of cross purposes. That's possible. And then there are, I believe, a very few who are consciously enemies of God. They've been made aware there's some reason or some development of or reaction on their part that they consciously hate the idea of a God and his purposes and react to it and resist it at every turn. And as the scripture said, blaspheme it. That's actually, in my understanding, a fairly rare phenomenon, but it is possible to be an enemy of God to consciously resist him at every turn and consciously actually hate him and everything he that goes with it. Just quickly to add to that, like there's lists in the Bible of the wicked. There's descriptions of the hateful and the jealous and the envious and the malicious gossips and and the, the fruits of unrighteousness and the deeds of the flesh of drunkenness and and outbursts of rage and lustful thoughts and things like this. Uh, I don't think it's just being an atheist and not believing, although that is mentioned, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But I think it's also some of these other things, which sometimes can be somebody who claims to believe in God. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. What you said is very important, very helpful in fleshing out what I was saying. In that middle ground there, I think it's part of what's in the middle ground and even part of the entire spectrum, I believe, of those who want to be friends of God, who want to be participate with him, still have some of those things. And then there's the whole spectrum there, I suppose. But yes, you're right. There are all those descriptions of the fool and the wicked things happen in there. And our job is not to figure out what category people are in, but to encourage and push and warn and advocate for God is 
a God of love. He is worthy. He's a God of justice. He will set things right. He's a God who will make sure that those who deserve better will get better in, in some way. And those who have been treated wrongly will eventually get justice. And those who do wrong will get their own justice and those who do well. So the job is not for us just to figure out if people are on one side of the fence or the other, but it's to encourage people to draw people to, as Scripture said, rebuke, exhort, do all of those things to move people toward uh, being reconciled with God themselves so that they're part of a plan and not resisting him in any way, consciously or unconsciously. Mm. So do you feel like that leads people to a place where they feel as though the level of their connection with God or their and their spiritual status is going to be based on their own works? And, you know, none of us performs 100% all the time, even if we're kind of pointed in the right direction, we're going to mess up. So does that create a situation where we're afraid of of not performing enough and then you know am i going to have a mediocre afterlife or am i not even going to make it to the good place or whatever do you think that leads people to uh to that sort of a work salvation insecurity yeah there are always ways to distort or misunderstand there are ways to misunderstand things or to not get it all to not get it right but as we've been discussing even those of us who are sure that we have a high view of Scripture and are sure that we're being taught by the, the most trustworthy theologians and those of us who are sure that we're in the circles where the best doctrine and the best theology are protected and taught, uh, we still find that we struggle with some of those questions and some of those insecurities and some of those ambiguities and some of those yeah. mysteries mysteries that we claim sometimes to know the answer to and still aren't quite sure that we do, we come back to the mystery and, and to one of the areas in which we really are told not to judge is to try to figure out exactly where people are in that whole pilgrimage and on that spectrum, but rather to be light and life and encouragement and help for people to move in a right direction and respond to God by saying yes to him all the time instead of saying no. And that's one of the, that's one of the most simple uh, guides toward is to just be people who say yes to God in whatever amount of light and understanding we have. We say yes to that instead of resisting it and fighting against it. And I'm trying to wrap things up, but I keep thinking of things that need to be said. But, you know, it, it also depends on what you mean by God and what you mean by feeling a call. Because if, if you have this understanding of a wrathful, angry God that's going to send you to hell if you don't, you know, stay in church and do the right things, I know you enough to know that when you say yes to God, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about the Sermon on the Mount and loving our neighbors and, and sacrificially caring for for people. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just saying yes to everything that comes along or yes to everything the church says or yes to every everything every theologian says. No, no, that would be misunderstanding of what I'm I'm saying. And yeah, I don't yeah, I don't get it all out. I mean, I, it, like you say there's we say things in a way and there's parts of it we miss. There's there's just parts of it that that have to be that another voice helps bring balance to like yours just did to mine and that's part of the community going forward and working on things together theologizing together and understanding together and responding together and serving together that's part of what that is yeah no that's really beautiful what i'm hearing you say is that i perhaps haven't left the gospel behind i've left behind a truncated and very reductionistic version of what the gospel is and what I know I've heard you say this in sermons before and other people have tried to draw attention to this is that the gospel has to be bigger than just 
getting our ideas in the right place. It has to be bigger than just repenting of your sins and believing the right things is certainly part of it, ideally, but it also needs to impact our lives. And by impacting our lives, I mean more than just going to church and not having sex outside of marriage. It it, it needs to be costly service to those that need it. I think that that really bears out in the life of Jesus and in the life of the early church. And then joining the kingdom of God as we find other people that are like-minded, whether they're in the church or outside the church, as far as the actual building, I think we can be part of the mission of reconciling God to man. And that that can be something profoundly life-giving for ourselves and also something that gives life and rejuvenation to our communities and our cultures and our societies. If it has that power, it has done that in the past, I feel like we're in a particularly difficult time right now, but there is still that power within the Christian message to bring that sort of life to our culture. And I, I think that that's, it is something that our culture needs. Yeah, well said. Very well said. Thank you very much, Merle, for your time. You're welcome.